Isn't it interesting as Christians how many things uh, that we disagree over? If you're visiting, we're in the middle of something called a Tough Issues series. These are areas, they're not easy answers, because godly Christian women and men, intelligent, disagree on them. And for it to be a Christian discussion, we just need to do three things. One, it's got to be done in love. Have you ever noticed when someone shares their spiritual convictions, how they really don't care what yours are? Have you noticed that? Share in love. Two, it's got to be done in respect. And third, the Bible is our final court of appeals. A few weeks ago, we looked at the Bible itself, a tough issue. How do you interpret it? It's not a magic book. We don't worship this book. We worship the risen Christ. But yet this is the infallible word of God that guides and leads us to that. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at sexuality as how can I be sexual if I'm not married as a man or woman in the area of outside of marriage and the area of homosexuality? Next week, we're going to take a looking at ghosts and demons and the dead. And what does the Bible say about that? I had a woman ask last year if I had come over and exercised not a demon, but her dead grandfather out of her house. I said, you mean take the body out? She said, no, he's haunting me. So I gave that one to Roger. But as we uh, take a look at this... Well, what does the Bible say about that? We're going to look at that next week. But this morning we take a look at two of the three food groups, smoking and drinking. And we want to take a look, what does the Christian, how do we respond to these tough issues? Everyday pleasures, does God address that? If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans, the 14th chapter. It's on page 923 in your Red Pew Bible. Romans 14, verses 1 through 9. Paul is writing to a church he's never been to in Rome. People are fighting whether you should eat meat that's been offered to pagan deities or observed days. Or How do we know what to do? Do you act like a Jew? Do you act like a Roman? And he responds in this way. Together as God's people, let's read verses 1 through 9 together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's Word. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. For God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. And they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. And those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. 
I have pleasure in my life just like you. And the question is, what happens when pleasure goes too far? I asked our drama department, and sharing and knowing my weakness, if they might explain this struggle that I go through in life. They have this. Watch this. It all started innocently enough. Um, it wasn't against the law, and uh, frankly, everyone else was doing it. Hey, Doc. Oh, hey, Doc. What's going on? Donut? Oh, I shouldn't really. You sure? I figured it couldn't hurt to have just one. I never thought that I'd turn into one of those. That's incredible. I guess that was the start for me. It went downhill pretty fast from there. Dude, Doug, I've been looking all over the place for you. You're supposed to be at that meeting 30 minutes ago. I'm on top of that. I just needed a little pick-me-up. Doug, pull yourself together. I thought I could hide my habit. But no one would find out. I was just fooling myself. I'll get it. Mm. Thanks. Sweetheart, look what I've done. Still, I hadn't hit rock bottom. was when I knew I had to get help. I was one of the lucky ones. I found a group. Hi, my name is Doug, and I'm a Krispy Kreme-aholic. Hi, Doug. I've been Krispy Kreme-free for about a month now. But not a day goes by that I don't have the urge. And whenever that happens, I call my support team and they talk me down. My wife's been great, but I realize that this is going to be something I'm going to have to deal with every day of my life. Something to offend everybody, we hope, in that one clip. We, 
Obviously, we are uh, not making light of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs with that, or even those of us that struggle with the eating disorders. But it is true that everyday pleasures uh, are a part of our everyday life, and we as Christians need to know how to respond to it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created by God. By their Creator, they were given certain inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You are not only a Christian, you don't live uh, in the Byzantine Empire or the Roman Empire or in Russia. You were born in a country that's given these three freedoms. Life, liberty, and liberty not just to do good, as many do though, but particularly Americans are obsessed with liberty to pursue happiness. Since you and I are bound by the Word of God as a Christian, how do we pursue happiness in this area of pleasure? We need a theology of pleasure. And if one word, if you're going to have a Christian theology of pleasure, it's this. Freedom. Paul said, for freedom Christ has set us free to the Galatian church. But freedom in two ways, two dimensions when it comes to pleasure. Freedom for the individual. You can't earn any more of God's pleasure by being a good boy and girl in that sense. But we're free. He never wants us to be enslaved to anything. And free interpersonally. It doesn't matter what others think of you. You're not here to get their approval. But because you belong to Christ, you and I are called to care for them and be sensitive to what their issues are. And Belair, with the mission that we have in front of us with working with other churches and trying to make this the greatest city for Christ in America, this area of pleasure and smoking and drinking and those sort of things is an area we need to be mature about. If the answer is really love, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you love your neighbor like you love yourself. You do that, and you can't mess it up. Well, let's take a look, first of all, at this whole idea about feeling good. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to the book of Ecclesiastes and the second chapter. It's on page 537 in your pew Bible. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. If we're going to talk about freedom for the individual, there are three areas that feel good. Solomon, as you know, uh, was probably, the if he was not the total author of this, his mind is obviously in it. Here he is, the wealthiest man of his day, probably the most intelligent man in all time outside of Jesus of Nazareth, because God gave uh, Solomon this God-breathed genius. He's got power, he's the king, and he's going, what is life all about? Verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure, enjoy yourself. But again, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. There are three areas of life that if you ever experience them, you want them again. Pleasure, happiness, and joy. Pleasure is basically physiological, and we're going to take a look at that. Happiness is mental. And mostly, as philosophers or theologians would say, overcoming finitude. 
What that means is you're a little creator. You were made in God's image. When you achieve something or accomplish something, make something with your hands or organize or, or pull off something great, you feel, yeah, that's happiness. But then there's something that's greater than all, and that's joy. Joy comes from God. You can't control it. You can make a landing zone for it. You can make an environment for it, but you can't pump joy up. In fact, joy, I agree with C.S. Lewis, is really the hunger for God. In fact, that hunger is so great, it's greater than anything you can consume. You know, when you're going along and you feel something, you go, wow, I feel great. And then you think, what was it? And it slips away. That, he says, is the stabs of joy, reminding us we belong to the Lord. But what about this thing of pleasure? That's basically physiological. We as Americans really think, and not the church, but secular America, if you get rid of all these Christians and these Jews and these Muslims, you could really get on with enjoying life. We really believe in not freedom of religion anymore, but freedom from religion, which is entirely different than the founding fathers' latest Guy goes into a bar and sits down. I'm sure you've heard this story. And the bartender says, what would you like? He said, I'd like a beer. And he brings him a beer. And he picks it up and he throws it in the bartender's face. The bartender goes, hey, 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 what are you doing? He goes, I'm sorry. He says, I've just got authority issues and you reminded me of my dad. And he said, well, mellow out. And so he said, well, I'll take another one. So uh, kind of takes it and he takes it and he throws it in his face. And he goes, get out of here. He goes, you're sick. You need help. You'll go get a counselor before you come back in. Half a year later, same guy walks into the bar and he sits down. The barkeep looks at him and he goes, I'm okay. Counseling. So he went over and he said, what'd you like? He said, I'll take a beer. So he took a beer and he poured it and he handed it to him. And he took it and he took a swig and then he threw it in the guy's face. The bartender said, what are you doing? I thought you had counseling. I thought you had therapy. I thought you said you were better. He said, I am. I still do the same things, but I don't feel guilty anymore. <laughs> that, believe it or not is really the philosophy of pleasure in our culture today. That you're free to do if you can just get over this feeling bad. Well, some propositions on pleasure. First of all, pleasure, as you notice with Solomon, he says, I tried to make my body happy, but it was useless. You know, you can get as high as a kite, you can feel great at the moment, but you got to come down and there's an emptiness. So pleasure has its limits. But proposition one, all pleasure is from God. God created it. We saw in the story of the garden, he made trees not just for functioning, but all that were good to look upon. Do you know up here by Solvang, there are a zillion poppies that are going to grow and no human eye will ever see them? Do you know there are things in the bottom of the sea that are beautiful and they glow? Nobody will ever see them. Do you know why God made them? It's not for the ecosystem. He thinks they look cool. God is into pleasure. He said, yes, this is a delight. Why would God give you this body with its senses? What is the use in you being able to hear a child laugh? Or to feel somebody hug you? Or a hot cup of coffee? Or to smell some flowers? Or to hear some beautiful... Why did God do that? Because He likes it. Pleasure is from God. In fact, the rabbis say, we will give an account for every pleasure we refuse to enjoy. Now, I think they're onto something. What they mean is when God offers us pleasure and we say no, it's really being rebellious and throwing a spiritual temper fit because life isn't going the way we want, so we're not going to enjoy that. Winston Churchill, I shared when he was meeting one time, and Churchill was in to pleasure. 
You know, he's a great man, but man, the guy knocked down the uh, bangers and booze all the time. And he smoked a lot, and bangers is that kind of sausage. Do you, do you like bangers? But stay on track, Mark. Uh, as he was sitting there, and his general, who was just fighting Rommel from Northern Africa campaign, was sitting there and apprising him of the war. And it, Churchill offered to him some caviar. And this general said, there is no way I'm going to eat caviar where our boys are freezing in that African desert. Churchill said, if you can show me how my not eating caviar will help one of those boys, I'll never touch it again. Otherwise, pass me a cracker. (laughs) What he meant was, going without doesn't mean others necessarily go with. And the point being that sometimes in life, God has given good pleasure. In fact, the new world is physical stuff. The new earth and the new heavens. There's pleasures at thy right hand forevermore, Scripture has promised us. Proposition two, though. Sin has entered pleasure. We are no longer having our desires in order. We are all fallen, twisted, busted creatures with this congenital disease called sin. And the means in the end now get lost. Pleasure was given as icing on the cake, not the main meal. It was to be a refreshing along the journey of life. But now we try to make pleasure the end. And this word epithumia, epi, like inside, thumia, desire, is the biblical word for lust. And not just sexual lust. Epithumia means, it's, and it's a picture of a creature eating itself. And desire is where desire consumes itself, the law of diminishing returns. Henry VIII was so driven by cravings out of control. When he came to the throne in 16th century England, there were great hopes he was a brilliant, good-looking, a great athlete. He was a brilliant mind. Most music scholars that I've heard think he's the one that wrote the tune Green Sleeves. Nobody can really figure out where it came from. It came from his court, and they think he may have. And there were high hopes. But Henry VIII was obsessed with pleasure. He was not only sexually addicted, not only is that why five of his wives he executed... I always like to say when I get up for a quick talk, like Henry VIII said to his wives, I won't keep you long. (laughs) You know, he had one, and that's why when he was married to Anne Boleyn in the Catholic Church, Rome wouldn't give him a divorce. Is why he split off, and he started the Church of England. He not only executed two of his other friends, and he slept around. He, good looking, he became so heavy. He ate so much food, they literally had a pulley system. He stood in a cage that they pulled it by chains up to the top of the castle because they couldn't walk there anymore. And what started as a great life ended in disaster. Two weeks ago when I was preparing for our talk on sexuality, I think I found the biggest sleaze of all time, Cleopatra. She was so sexually addicted. It says that she, from age 12 or 13, uh, was involved sexually a lot growing up. She certainly not only slept with Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar, she kept girls, you think, you know, you'd like to have a boy toy. She kept a hundred of them on call of the best looking men that she could have sex with at any time she want. And her life ends in suicide. So pleasure is nothing new to this world. Yes, God made it, but now we are slaves of it. Proposition three. 
As a Christian, though, forgiven by the blood of Christ on that cross, we are free to do anything. But not everything is smart to do. Where'd you get that? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians, our last passage, the sixth chapter. It's on page 929 in your pew Bible. Corinthians, as you know, is basically a kind of a grocery list of questions and answers. The Corinthian church was asking Paul. Remember, Corinth is a great seaport in the middle of the isthmus there. The temple of Aphrodite is there. It's kind of like the Las Vegas of Greece. And his church has, I have these questions. What should, what do we do? Look at verse 12 of the sixth chapter. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Everything, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. There you have it. You are free. I want you to know this. You are free to walk out of this sanctuary this morning because of Christ's blood and forgiveness. You are free to do anything you want. It's no longer trying to earn God's favor, trying to chin ourselves up. If my good deeds are better than my bad deeds, God no longer keeps score. He's thrown the scoreboard in the depths of the sea. But God wants you to not be enslaved to anything. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Whoever sins becomes a slave to sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever, but the son does. The rebellion of saying, God, I want to do what I want, is what's sinful. What happens next is just the consequences of being addicted to it. And how we get twisted up as Christians is Satan keeps going, see, you fell, see, you did it again, you did it again, you did it again. And we keep wondering why our heart's not right. Well, our heart may be right, but we got off the track and we need some help to be able to get back on the right track. And that brings up the question of smoking. There is nothing in the Bible that speaks about smoking because tobacco wasn't around then. I believe all things that grow are from God. Of course, this was the old argument we used to try to use in the 60s and 70s. You know, why you could smoke pot, you know. Dude, God grew it, you know. Uh, only made rattlers, you don't suck on their head, you know. Uh, but... Spurgeon, who was a devout uh, Baptist, one of the great evangelists and pastors, he really had a Reformed theology, more of a Presbyterian theology, but being uh, English, he didn't like to deal with Americans because Americans always bugged him. He, he smoked a cigar. And someone said to him, don't you think that's a sin? He said, no, not if it's done in moderation. And they said, well, what's moderation? He said, one at a time. <laughs> Isn't that a great line? Well, you know, the, the, the point being that God has given us freedom. Having said that, nicotine physiologically is more addictive than heroin. All of our doctors in here will tell you that. It is easier for you to get off crack than it is to get off smoking if you have smoked for a while. It is a chemical that's so enslaved so fast. Having a cigar or a cigarette or whatever once in a while... That's not an addictive kind of thing. But I want to tell you, you are playing with fire. And that's where if you have the freedom in Christ, if you see somebody with a cigar or a beer in their hand and you judge them, Paul says, how dare you do that? You go to the cross. 
And if you think God has given you the freedom to do that, and you wave it, and you make somebody to stumble, and you say, I don't care, he said, you better go to the cross. The point being that when we come under these addictive behaviors, it's we could avoid that. And you have to be very, very careful with this. My grandfather, uh, at his height, was 5'1". They called him Shorty, if you want to know where my genetic pool comes from. Uh, just a mean, tough little son of a gun, but... He chewed since uh, in seventh grade, Copenhagen. He was easy to shop for at Christmas. You just buy him a sleeve of Copenhagen as a little kid. Here, Grandpa. Thanks, kid. You know, and uh, <laughs> he was so addicted to chewing. He took up smoking to try to stop, and he couldn't. I mean that. That's how addicted he was to that. And if you ever see what happens to somebody that's chewed for a while with mouth cancer and things. Even Freud died of cigar cancer from his mouth. He tried as a surgeon to cut out his own tumors. You've got to be really careful. Now, what about drinking? Well, you know a Presbyterian is a Baptist who's loose enough to drink but not rich enough to be an Episcopalian. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> so you probably think I'm coming from a particular angle, and I am with this. The Old Testament says, God giveth wine to cheer the heart. One of my favorite passages in life, you know, that God gives wine. And alcohol was a part of certainly the Old Testament life, certainly for ritual and worship. If you have a Messianic Jewish rabbi, by the way, and you bring grape juice to the service, that is not a good point. The difference between kosher wine and grape juice is only a weekend anyway, but... Um, why they, the fermentation is a part of the process of the holiness to that. Having said that, and Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach, Timothy, to whatever his ailments were. Alcohol is the number one substance that is ruining this world hands down. Hands down. There's not a drug on this planet that has destroyed lives as much as alcohol. We serve grape juice not because we theologically think wine is wrong, but to be sensitive to the alcoholics that we have here. Carolyn's uh, father, Chuck, who was really became, he was in the military and in Vietnam early on in the 60s and then became uh, an alcoholic, a street drunk. That He said if they hadn't thrown him in jail, he probably would have died. And he, through AA, dried up and found the Lord. I was talking with him last summer and there's a new teaching out that is saying that, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you can drink again. And I asked him about that. He said, first of all, if you've ever been an alcoholic, you would never want to go near it. There's not a day of your life you don't fight with it. You would never, never go near it. Second of all, just like when you're a wet drunk, a hundred drinks is never enough and one is too many. He had a friend who just did his 15th birthday. In AA, a birthday is when you've been sober for a year. Dry for 15 years. He picked up a drink last year, and he just went to his funeral. He drank himself to death. 15 years of being dry. We have to be very, very careful. Biological science might think there might be an endorphin deficit of why an alcoholic chemically bonds to this in that sense. The point being, if you think you have freedom to have a beer or something, you know, the Lord says that's free. That's wonderful. But you be very, very careful in how you're modeling, who you're around, those who cannot handle this. And I want to tell you particularly a lot of this in the 6 o'clock service. Alcoholism normally starts in high school and college. Almost 90%. You can just follow through and find out where it started. 
And so the Lord calls us to not just do escape behavior, but to be free. Don't, don't judge people for their lies. They stand before Christ, Paul says, not to worry. They'll give an account. Who are you to judge them? But he said, you also stand clear because not only does God want you to be free to enjoy the things he's given, but to care about each other. You want to have a formula for a neurotic, rotten life? Yes, Mark, I'd like to have that formula. Tell me uh, about that. Here it is. No matter what decision you make, start out with this question. What will other people think? You want to ruin your life, you make every decision on the basis of what you think other people will think. That will ruin your life. And another way is the flip side of that. You just say, I don't care what anybody thinks, I live for me. Both of them are greased slides to hell. You don't live for other people in the crowd. Don't ask their opinions. My goodness. And don't say, well, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. You say, Lord, to you. To you I love, and so how can I care for others? Faith. Paul said you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. Someone came up to me after uh, the Passion uh the film and saying it was so violent and uh, I took my child and if you haven't gone and you haven't taken your child, do not take your child to it. And then we got off on the discussion on uh, all sorts of movies. And what about other R-rated movies? You know, and, and how far can, can you go and what can you go and, and see in those things? And I might point out, by the way, if you haven't walked out on a movie in the last two years, you haven't been seeing a lot of movies. I mean that. Or you become as numb and under the spell of the intoxication of the violence and the sex of this world like the rest of this world. There are some great film out there and there are some terrible film that is out there. There are some wonderful books and there is just some scum that is out there. And the worst thing about the scum, they're written so well. They're good artists at this. And so, but you in your own heart, you feel your own freedom. If you think it's okay, then go and enjoy. Get the big popcorn, you know, enjoy it. <laughs> But, that's not, also it's not just faith, it's also hope. You're not living for pleasure and escape. God didn't make you content to just sit around and channel surf with a six pack and a pizza in front of you, or just to go from bed to bed. That's not what life is about. You're a son and a daughter of the living king. You are higher, you are greater than that. Yes, he gives these things to help us along the way. But that's not what life's about. What are you living for? And not only faith and hope, but love. You're doing this because you love the Lord. You're doing this because you love you. You want your best. And you do this because you love others. Uh, speaking of film, uh, the Alamo uh, coming out, and I don't know how they'll portray it. In 1836, I'm sure you know this band of Settlers in Texas fighting for their independence gathered in the Alamo and General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. What Santa Ana here is named up. He was actually a very good general. Tough on his men. Marched them all the way up to start to stop this rebellion of these Texans. And they were surrounded around. And we always think of people like Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie who both died fighting there. But there's a gentleman that Colonel Travis came and talked to by the name of James Bonham. Bonham was a frontiersman, and he asked, as they were surrounded and saw, if there was any chance they needed to get reinforcements, and nobody knew they were there. Bonham, at night, fought his way through, badly wounded, 
made his way to a little town miles away uh, in Texas by the name of Goliad. And there at Goliad, he asked if the troops had come and help, and they said, we have to protect ourselves. We can't send any. Do you know what James Bonham did? Did he live out the rest of his days in Texas? Did he stay there and help those people? No. He fought his way back in to the Alamo and died with them. What would do that? Love. Jesus didn't just come and look and honor the Father and say, I'm out of here. But he fought his way on that cross through the sins. Every sin I've done, every sin you have done. He tasted of death and he drank the last drop of that bitter cup. He descended into hell. He was resurrected on the third morning. And he's fighting his way back with us every day saying, I'm here. I will fight with you to the end of victory. Hey, if the Lord has given you freedom in Christ to do a lot of things that maybe others who are weaker in faith, well, praise the Lord and do it and do it with gusto. But be careful of those that are vulnerable that are out there. If the Lord hasn't given you that kind and you feel convicted, I shouldn't do this, don't do it. Don't try to think you're pleasing God by living under a new law, but say, Lord, this is a smarter way to live. But whatever the Lord has done to us, he has given us a sense. Hey, if you're addicted or is the biblical term enslaved or weak or hooked or whatever adjective you want to use, get help. Come to Christ and get help. There's a way out. Fight against it. God can help you with this. But above all, whatever you do, realize that we have a great God. He is with us. Someday we're going to be free. In the meantime, he's given us each other. Amen? Let's pray, shall we? Almighty God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I thank you that you understand this flesh and blood that we live in, Lord. I first of all want to thank you, God, for the gift of pleasure, for all the beauty of your creation, Lord, and the the sweet sounds and tastes and experiences of being alive. But God, I want to thank you most of all for the joy of knowing that we're loved by you and you've paid for our sin, Lord. And that you've called us to a future and that, Lord, we don't need to go out and judge the world, but we need to love them and help them and find what it is to be free. Oh, Christ, keep us free. And, Lord, one of the ways to right now to hold our freedom is to honor you financially. And so, Lord, I thank you for the money that you have loaned to us for this journey. You're waiting to see whether we're stewards or not. God, I pray for those that can give just a little. Would you encourage them at this time and show us how to help? And, Lord, those of us that can give... With great generosity, teach us the joy and the freedom of stewardship. So thank you, Lord. Bless the gift and the giver alike. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.